the Canadian Military History Podcast. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Today I'm going to have to keep the preamble a little short. I'm running out of editing time. I've been editing the podcast all day long, which is fine. That's what I signed up for. However, I do need to get on to other things. So the preamble will be a little quick and we'll get through it and on to the guest. So to start it off, I'd like to thank Warrant Officer Mike Case of the Lawrence Scots, and he took the initiative and lined up my guest for today. So I want to thank him again for being a supporter of the show and a loyal listener. That's great. And if you know if somebody has a compelling story to tell, please pass on their information to me. It's always good to get some fresh guests. So you can reach me at MikeLacroixCMHP at gmail.com. My guest today is Master Corporal Jody Middick, who joined the Lorne Scots in 1994 and transferred to the Royal Canadian Regiment soon after. He made the transition from reserve service to full-time regular force service in the infantry with ease, and then he went through the training to become a sniper. He then went on to become a leader in the military. As a Master Corporal, he stayed with his sniper debt and eventually got to lead a sniper debt of his own. Master Corporal Middit is well known for being on The Amazing Race and a Canadian icon, a person who absolutely does not know the meaning of the word quit. Despite the fact that he's had to face some setbacks, he continues to support the military and he continues to support soldiers who have suffered injuries such as his. He's the founder of the Never Quit Foundation, whose goal is to be able to raise money and awareness for adaptive living for wounded soldiers, amputee children, and first responders injured in the line of duty. A very noble cause, a very interesting person to talk to. Although I had never met him before, it just sounded like we'd been friends for years and years. That kind of person that just makes you want to talk and share experiences with him. Here's my interview with Master Corporal Jody Middick. Master Corporal Middick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You and I have never met, but I got your information from Warrant Officer Mike Case of the Lawrence Scots. That's right. Yeah, Mike and I go back to uh, 1996, I want to say, maybe 95. I joined the Lawrence Scots in 94 at the tender age of 17, and he joined, I think he was 18 or 17. And He's a frequent listener of the podcast, and he's also a supporter. It's great. We haven't spent a lot of time together since I went to the Reg Force in 87. Uh, we've reconnected since I was wounded. He's got a big heart. When he realized that I was as much a history buff as I was back in the day and, and also an avid podcast listener, I think he thought perfect fit was to introduce us. Definitely. Jody, have you had a chance to review the questions? I have. I have them right in front of me. Excellent. So let's get started then. Why did you join the Canadian Armed Forces? There's a lot of debate about this in the family because the only other military person in the family besides my mom's youngest brother who joined the Royal Canadian Regiment in the 70s was my grandfather on my father's side. And he was like a Serbian border guard prior to World War II. My Uncle Jim, because when I was like two, three, four he would get HLTA and he would come to our house to visit because he, he really didn't have anywhere else to go. In the 70s, the guys didn't get paid much, but they were allowed to travel for free on the trains if they wore their uniforms. 
So he would show up at the front door in his uniform, and he always had a teddy bear for me. So as a very, very young fellow, I must have just thought that Army guys were the coolest because from where I could form memory on, I always wanted to be in the infantry. As I got older, some of it developed into duty to country. Um, so a big part of it was proving manhood, being a warrior, admiring that type of person. And so I, when I turned 17 and my mom signed the paper, I joined the Lawrence Scott down in the Peel Dufferin area just because I, I read about how you can go and do it for the summer. And I was like, oh, well, there's a good way to see if I'm actually cut out for this life. I think it goes all the way back to when I was like three, two, three, four, five, and my uncle would always show up with teddy bears for me. So what was the world like when you joined? I was 17, so barely aware of anything except the hormones raging through me. I didn't know it, but Canada was in the economically depressed. Cold War was, I think it was just winding down at that point. Yeah. I forget, what year did the wall come down again? That was 89. Yeah, so there was still a lot of the Cold War mentality, but severe lack of budget. At the time, you know, you don't know it, like when you're that age and you're enlisting. At least I didn't uh, know it, that the, the money just wasn't there for a lot of things. I remember going into the recruiting office, and the guy was like, oh, yeah, you're great, everything is good, you might not be hiring. And I even remember my uncle, who had joined the RCR in the 70s, he was now an Air Force captain. Because I, I always wanted to be a grunt, except for whenever Top Gun came out, and then I wanted to be a, an F-14 pilot. And then my, my uncle was like, well... First of all, we don't have <laughs> F-14s or aircraft carriers or cool soundtracks. And even if you did get to be a pilot, there's like three times as many pilots as there are planes. That lasted like a year, and then I went back to just wanting to be a Special Forces guy or whatever. But you see in the movies back then, because you think everything you see in the movies is the way it is, right? You know, I remember the same yeah. uncle yelling at me because I thought we had Marines. And he was like, we don't have freaking Marines. The regular Canadian soldiers good enough. We don't need them. And I was just like, oh, geez, okay. <laughs> it was kind of peaceful. We'd heard about Bosnia, but nobody was really aware of what was happening, things like that. To be honest, at that age, I, I was more worried about myself than anything. <laughs> right. I remember it being, I'm not worrying about much except for my next date. It was an all right world, I think. Yeah, that kind of ties into the next follow-on question. What were you like when you joined? Mm. So you kind of already touched on most of that. Is there anything you'd like to add? At 17, I was more chimpanzee than anything. I was looking for a challenge in my life, entering manhood at a, as a late-age teenager. My dad was the kind of dad that was always working. I had to travel a lot for his job. And I was a bit of a loner in school. I was looking for a challenge as a man and for male role models and for a sense of purpose. Because I didn't play any sports at school. Football coach and the track coach were always trying to get me to join their teams. And I just didn't have time. I was like, I don't really want to hang out with you guys and the people you associate with. For whatever reason, I just, they weren't bad people or anything. Right. I'd rather read a book than watch TV. So I was doing some acting in, in the high school drama program and stuff. I needed physical challenge and release to be uh, focused as well. Like, I never did homework. I was failing most of my classes. And uh, I think when after I joined, there was everybody around me noticed a, a massive shift of attitude and, and drive. Like suddenly, I was starting to get A's when I used to get D's. Not in every class, but <laughs> and, and in a lot of them. Suddenly, I would show up when I say I would. I Everyone always said I was more mature than, I, than they thought. If I was 17, they thought I was 20. I was just lacking any kind of direction. Right. And I think when I joined, and I was, especially once I finished my basic training on the Manawa Plains in Petawawa, 
when I, they handed me the, the Lawrence Scott cap badge, it was like past the initiation and now welcome to manhood. Right. That's kind of how I felt. And I was fiercely proud to be representing the country, but also at, even at that age, looking forward to the adventures. Because we all watch too many movies. Yeah, exactly. Right? And we read too many books about how incredible it is to be a soldier and all this stuff. And, and every young man has those thoughts, I think, or most of them. And so that's, that's what I was like. I was just stars in the eyes, fiercely proud to be in green and trying to make my way in the world as an individual as well. Yeah, I was about six years ahead of you, so we were very much into platoon and full metal jacket, all that kind of stuff. Oh, some of the best movies ever, <laughs> right? Like, who hasn't quoted the line, Animal Mother's one of the best human beings in the, you, you'll ever meet. He just needs someone to throw hand grenades at him the rest yeah. of his life. I mean, best line in any movie ever. <laughs> what is your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces? Or your greatest achievement? My greatest achievement, I think, was leading my sniper team in battle. I managed to become a master sniper qualified, and then I was given the responsibility of the, of leading a small group. We operated in teams of three uh, when I was in Afghanistan in 06. The whole battle group on certain days hinged on my decisions, so whether it was my team out on the day that was my team out at the point. Literally, so far ahead uh, sometimes that the company we were attached to was afraid to call our grid into HQ for fear of getting in shit for letting us get so far ahead. Like, you know, we were out doing the job and I had these guys looking to me for leadership and respecting me enough that they li would listen to me. And I had, two, you know, two of the greatest soldiers I've ever worked with willing to, to follow me and, and come with me out and do these missions where we've talked to JTF guys friends of ours that, that have gone into, this, into the SF and told them what we were up to, and they were shaking their heads on, man, we wouldn't do that stuff. You guys are really out there pushing it. And that's what we wanted to do. So that's one of my greatest feelings of accomplishment was that I was able to be in a position and earn the trust and the respect of some of the greatest soldiers I've ever known in a 20-year career, that they would be willing to do these tasks with me that other soldiers straight up refused or would question the <laughs> question or wouldn't do without more what they would feel would be the more support because we were strong enough as a team and that with our skills that we were ready to take on 10 to 1 odds and smile the whole time doing it. Yeah, exactly. As I developed in my career, I honestly did want to taste battle and I got to do that with these guys. To this day, it was uh, the best six months of my life right up until I stepped on that landmine. Right. The whole thing was a massive honor for me. Jody, what is your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces? I think if I had to, okay, besides stepping on a landmine <laughs> and having both my feet blown off, the opening day of Op Medusa, I think, really stands out in my mind. My sniper team was attached to Charles Company, the company that led the attack. And the idea, in a nutshell, was that they were going to take the objective and we were going to move to the roof or the closest, highest point and try and take our targets of opportunity and best we could secure their next bound. Being snipers, we're like, one thing people don't realize, we're like gypsies in the battlefield. We don't really come with any mobility besides our feet because any vehicles we have are, they're like a liability once you get to where you're going because how do you hide a Jeep or a four-wheeler or something when you're in a sniper hide? So anyway, we're attached to Charles' company and during orders, listening to the plan and all this, and we're like, okay, well, sound, sounds good enough. And uh, you can tell the tension in the air. Everybody from the major down to private 
this is it. This is a real deal. And there had been a few engagements before out Medusa. Guys, the PPCLI had been engaged pretty heavily as they were rolling in and as we were doing the handoff, there were ambushes and some rolling firefights here and there. But there's no, like, actual deliberate, here's the plan, here's where we're going, this is what we're going to do once we get there. This was all front to back, a full battle plan from the top down and being handed over to us. And here we are in position to be part of the first ever offensive for NATO, right? What an honor. But holy crap. <laughs> we're getting the intelligence briefs. Oh, well, somebody told them we're coming because they're digging in even harder. There's been increased activity on the positions uh, where the, the enemy defensive is. We rolled in. We had 72 hours to prep for the attack. Well, everybody set up in their battle areas around Masamgar, going into Panjwai and the Argandab River. My sniper team had a JTF sniper team attached with us, and we were kind of following their lead because they had been there, done that, and I got some good mentoring from them. Learned a lot quickly, almost like a fire hose of learning in those 48 hours, hanging out with these guys and watching what the battle group's doing and it shakes out. There's some experienced American units attached. It was really like a wonder for me. Like I was just taking it all in. I remember the first time just before the attack launched, early for some reason, by the way, I know the command elements have debated why they decided to go in early or not. It's not really my place to question it or not. All I know is we did go in early. But I remember my first time, we had M777s, first of all, 155 howitzer. I didn't even know what it looked like. <laughs> I'm calling in fire from this thing. I knew it was a great piece of artillery, apparently, but I was just like, okay. And I remember... The first day, we were in position, and it's, hey, we have a target. We see what looks like to us to be a Taliban command post in a field. And there's a guy on, on his radio, and he's looking. You could tell he's calling in coordinates on our guys and stuff and looking at them. We're like, holy beep. There they are. That's them. That's what they look like. And we're like, okay, well, too far away to shoot them. So like, we're going to call in these M777 things and see what happens. And I remember I got into an argument with the, with the foo because he said he couldn't see the target. And I'm looking at him. I can see him. He's on the other side of a, of a valley sitting behind his lab in a lawn chair. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and I'm like, I know you can't see him, dude. And he's looking at me as I'm looking at him. And I'm like, I know you can't see him, dude. We're the snipers. We can do this, too. And we can see him. We're, that's what we do. We get in positions that you don't. But it's so new to all of us, even him as a forward observation officer, he's never really actually talked to snipers calling in a fire mission. So to him, he's like, who are these guys? And so I'm like, dude, we can see them. There's like five of them. They're in a command post just calling some rounds for me. And he's like, all right, all right. And then finally he gives me some rounds. He realizes, yeah, okay, we're all here to do the same job, I guess. I don't know. So, okay, shot over, shot out, round land, okay, left whatever it was, add whatever, and then, okay, we're there for effect. And so these rounds start raining in. Oh, right, so, sorry, but before that, even though we practiced it a million times on the simulator, I had a little cheat sheet in my, in my FMP that told me uh, how to call in artillery. I wrote every word I was going to say down. Right. Once he passed me off to the gun line, I wrote down my call sign. Duh. Yeah, 6-3 <laughs> yeah. Charlie. I wrote down target, grid, out, everything. I wrote everything down. My two IC of my sniper team, we were fire team partners in Kosovo in 99, and the mortar team for the platoon, he's laughing at me. 
He's like, dude. And I'm like, do you want to do it? He's like, no, 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 keep running. Because <laughs> you know, we're all so nervous. We're actually going to do this. So the rounds come in. So we watch. And these guys, these Taliban guys, the, the guy, he's on the radio. The, the round land is maybe 200 meters away. And a 155 is massive when it goes off. Barely even looks over at it because he's calling in what well, he's calling in for his guys. And then the next round lands almost on top of him. And he doesn't even duck. And I'm like, the ball's on this guy. Are you <laughs> kidding me? And then I'm like, okay, you know, left 100 or, you know, whatever, 50 for effect. And as the rounds are coming in, a few of the guys from the post are leaving, right? They're running off. And this one guy, I'll never forget him, and I really, I truly hope he's still alive out there somewhere, and we can have a drink in 20 or 30 years when they get over their problems. He looks, the rounds start raining in, he looks around, puts his radio in his pocket, starts walking away. Walking away. And almost with disdain, a round lands and blows his schmeg off, off his shoulder. And almost with disdain, he picks it up, whips it so the dust falls off, and then flings it over his shoulder like he's walking <laughs> down a runway in Paris or something. Like, just like, he's silly artillery. And I'm losing my mind because I'm like, why, why isn't shrapnel getting him? Why is he not... And I, and I was, and this is where I learned about the farmers' roads in Afghanistan and how great they are in fighting positions and for protection. Because he was walking, I didn't realize this at the time, in between two rows of this farmer's field that were almost the same height as him, pretty much. So as the rounds are coming in, all of the forces of most of the explosions and travel are being sent into these walls that are, and they're not even coming near him. We didn't really realize this, but still. To watch him walk away, not even in a trot, not even in a hurry, just walking away. And there's nothing I could do about it. And this guy was obviously a seasoned veteran who had been under fire before and like, you're not going to scare me. <laughs> but anyway, so to go back to your question about memorable, when we launched the offensive for Op Medusa Labor Day 06, nobody knew what was going to happen because we were going in early, earlier than we thought we were going to seemed rushed. We almost got left behind because we're in our sniper position. We look down at the battle position and one of my guys is like, hey, uh, it looks like they're getting ready to go. <laughs> Even though we technically didn't have orders for the whole attack, the Major Sprague was going to give orders, I think, that night. But it was like there were the whole, you know, if it was just a couple labs, okay, maybe a recce, maybe a supply run, but no, it looks like everybody's getting ready to go. <laughs> And so I get on the radio, and I'm like, um, basically, I was like, there's something I should know? And he comes back with, get down here now, as a team. Like, pack up, get down here. Five minutes notice, he's like, now. <laughs> <laughs> so we pack up our gear as fast as we can. We hand off to the JTF sniper team that's still that's going to remain in the position. And we sprint down there, and we hop into the battle captain's lab. And basically, my orders were, I, well, I climbed up on the back of the, command, of the company commander's lab, as he's strapping on his helmet, he holds open his ear from the from the headphones, and I said, "What are you? What are What are we doing?" He's like, "We're going in. Let's go with your plan to take the high ground and cover the next bound." I'm like, "Good enough. Thumbs up." And I jump off the lab and I jump back into the battle captain's lab. That was orders. Right. And then the movement starts and we're moving across and we're in the back of the lab. 
my rucksack we were still learning was probably close to 90 pounds. It was ridiculous. And it's jammed into the back of the lab and I got my sniper in there and I got my 2IC in there and they have all their gear. They don't expect these guys. We just showed up and then we were going across the river. So I got my earpiece for the radio so I could hear what's happening. It sounded almost too much like training, if you if you understand what I mean. If yeah, definitely. I was like, huh, I understand training puts you in the mindset to be ready to do what we're doing, but it just seemed almost too much like we're going to do this and no problems and all this. And then all of a sudden, contact. And you could hear it. We heard it through the open hatches of the lab. When the rocket came in, I killed Warren Nolan. Rick's a guy that I had mentored under. He taught me on my recce course. He was one of the go-getters that I used to look up to. And we didn't know it at the time, but we're like, yeah, there's been a casualty. And then the engineers got hit. And then the guys that are just standing up in the sentry hatch of ours, and we're listening. And I've trained myself since 17 to for this moment. This is the moment. Like I said, We'd been mortared at patrol base Wilson, and there had been a little gunfight as we drove through an ambush, but they didn't even hit a lab, so they weren't really trying. They were just messing with us. This is real. Guys, suddenly it's like KIA, wounded next, casualty collection point. I'm hearing all this on the radio, and the guys in the battle captain hangs out, hangs a little bit back. His job is to take over the labs once they're empty and use them as a, as a fighting force. And the guys in the sentry hatches are just kind of calling a play-by-play to us, and suddenly, the one guy says, holy crap, they're right there. And he shoots a guy like 10 feet from the lab that like, popped out of the bushes. Starts launching M203 grenades. And we're just in the back of the lab like, holy man. Like, this is, like, what? Helpless. Being snipers, we were allowed to not wear our PP&E if we didn't want to. And because we thought we were badasses, we didn't wear any. <laughs> <laughs> Quickly regretting that decision because we have so much to carry. It's almost like we shouldn't be in a position to need a frag vest or a helmet if we're out doing ops. We're like, huh, that might have been a bad idea considering <laughs> how the day is going. I got a floppy hat on and I had my ballistic plate and my battle vest that we had gotten from an American website. Found out later if we'd ever been hitting that in the ballistic plate without the frag vest around it, the fragments from the plate probably would have killed us if the bullet didn't. Right. And then suddenly the lav comes to a abrupt stop almost so fast that we got thrown around and then accelerated faster than I've ever been in the back of the lab for it to accelerate and stopped again even harder. And the ramp drops and the battle captain's like, prepare to receive casualties. And we're like, huh, okay. Look back and there's a guy on my first day in the military when I joined and showed up in Mattawa as a young 17-year-old, could barely grow a whisker. Sergeant Scott Fawcett pops in, and he was Master Corporal Scott Fawcett. He was like 20 back in 1994, and he was my first section commander on my basic. He shows up, and he's acting Sergeant Major because everybody else is wounded or dead. And he's like, Minute, good to see you. And he's just like on. He's like a veteran, like, you know, like a centurion, like you'd expect in the Roman legions, <laughs> leading troops, pointing where they have to go. And up comes the medic that was in Rick's Jeep and his shoulders all blown out. And here comes the, the driver standing there without a scratch on him. And he's going, did you know the windows in the G-Wagon are bulletproof? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, get out. Really? <laughs> get out of town. And as we're loading these guys into the lab, the rocket comes in that takes out the Zettelmeyer and killed Frank Mellish and Cushley and wounded a bunch bunch of other dudes. And I felt the heat blast in the back of my legs. And I'm like, yeah, okay, 
we're really in this. Like it, it started to get even at that point, it's even more real. And I, we grab the medic and we throw him in the back of the lab and up ramp. And we're like, we got to get this guy. He's bleeding. So we, didn't, we don't know what to do. We're like, okay, take us to the casualty collection point. So the lab runs back, gets stuck in the sand. So Barry Nesbitt, my two IC, and had been a fire team partner of mine since Kosovo. We look at each other, no PP&E or not. We jump out of the lab, grab the medic. I throw his good arm over my shoulder and grab him by the belt. And I just like, keep moving your legs, man. And we started running. And we ran, I think we ran probably a couple hundred meters to the Bison ambulance to get this guy to the medical attention he needed. What? A, and what? I'm looking around and it's just terrible as it sounds. It was, it was exactly how I hoped it would be. Right. It was a it was a battlefield. There's burning vehicles. There's people being firemen carried to safety. There's everyone's doing their job. They're doing it awesome. There's cannons going off and artillery coming in and aircraft dropping bombs. And I'm running around in it with a with a, my C8 <laughs> and a floppy hat on, and I'm grinning ear to ear. I, I'm all, I gotta be honest, I was. My legs are on fire. I don't even think I can walk another step, but I'm still running somehow. I got this guy over my shoulder and I'm like, I just felt I felt so alive and so vindicated in the fifth to the twelve the twelve years of I dedicated in my adult life to this job. I was like, this is why we do it and it's and it's happening. Yes. Absolutely. This is and Barry and I are looking at each other like this is why we do what we do. We're taking a fellow soldier to safety to get him the help he needs. And then we get to the Bison Am, and they got that ramp up. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I'm like, what the? And I'm hammering on the back of the Bison with my foot of my rifle. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Open, like, the, all the hatches are closed. And it's just like everybody else, they've never been shot at before. They don't know. They're not sure what to do. And so as the ramp comes down, I'm like, but they had the ramp facing the, the battle. Oh, right, yeah. So I'm like, how about we turn it around so we got armor facing the battle and we can work on your poor guy here, one of your own that's been hit. And as we're doing that, a lab comes in and it's my buddy's call sign. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, we got, we got one of the dead with us. And I'm looking for my buddy. And I'm like, uh, my heart kind of dropped. And I was like, where's Jeff? He's, at, he's still on the position. He's, he's holding it with a couple guys. And my heart jumped again because I'm thinking that. Okay, not the casualty, and it's one of those feelings where you feel bad that you felt happy it wasn't your friend. Right. Right? But I quickly got over that, you know, and, and, and so the casualty comes in, and we put him in the body bag real quick, as quick as we can, and oh, everybody's trying to just do the job, and Barry and I were like, we're not even supposed to be here. We're supposed to be safe in the back of the lab, or, or at least in a position as snipers where we can influence the battle, but whatever, we're going to do this job, we're going to take care of the casualties, we're going to put the dead in the body bags if that's what we got to do, we're going to redistribute ammunition if that's what we got to do. Everything, one right after the other, these events are happening, and and then they call a pullback across the river to do a, a reorg. So, okay, and so Barry and I, are, we're sticking next to the ambulance, we're kind of trying to help secure it, it's not that close to the battle, it doesn't really need that, there's more casualties coming in, there's a lot of scratches, a lot of shrapnel, a lot of scrapes and stuff, nothing too crazy, you know, we had four dead that day, three of them royals, one of them a combat engineer, and, and next thing you know, we're watching our lab that we were riding in, and okay, so I told my sniper, Cash, 
I told him to stay in the lab because he had the sniper rifle and all our gear, and we were going to take this guy to the ambulance, and we'd be right back. When I see him coming out of the dust and the chaos of what, is, what was the, the battlefield, I got mad at him for a second, and then I said, what would I have done? I wouldn't have sat in that lab with my boys were running around out there. So we bring him in, and then we're all sitting there looking at the lab, our lab, that got stuck. And the, and the bulldozer rolls in, attaches some chains to it, pulls it out of the sand, and we're, and we're all laughing because one of the guys left his rifle leaning on the tire. <laughs> so as the lab is getting pulled out, it runs over his rifle. <laughs> <laughs> And then we were watching it, and we're like, oh, Donnie's rifle just got run over. Ah. And you see him, he's looking around, he's like, where did I put my rifle? And you see him, he looks down, and, he, and it's almost like a movie. He, like, looks at the sky, he puts his arms away, he's like, ah, you're like, why? And he picks up his rifle, and it's bent like a U. <laughs> <laughs> and he, you know, like a good soldier, he checks the action, clears it, shakes off the sand, and, and runs off. The next thing that happened is that this lad leaves, and that's our ride. Yeah. So we're like, okay. It's gone. And then because we're attached, nobody really knows we're there, if you know what I mean. And I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah. So we did what we like to call in, within our team the Argandob Mile. And we ended up running from that position we were at because the ambulance took off as soon as it was given authorization. It was like, all right, get that at the cord or at the reorg. So it takes off. And then the lab where it's supposed to be in takes off. And then after that, nobody really knows that they're supposed to pick us up. And my radio is in the back of that lab, so I can't even say, hey, can anyone pick us up? And so it's like, we're, we're running. So we just start, the three of us just start running. And we tried our best to get out of there as fast as we could. I remember as we're leaving, I look over and there's these ANA guys in a ditch uh, or in a wadi uh, part of the river with their pickup trucks. And they're just having a great time launching RPGs and firing their RPKs as fast as they can load them. And the one guy sees all the labs going back across the river, and he nudges his buddy, and he kind of shakes his head, almost like, Where are you? you know, you guys are going the wrong way. And he looks at me, you know, he gives me the, like, what's up, dude? Like, what's, what's going on type look. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I'm just, I'm just like you. I'm just here to, to, to do the job. <laughs> and, but, you know, without saying anything, because we were a good 100 meters apart, and so they, they like, shrug, they get back in their truck, and they drive back across the river, too. And we're running, and we come across this one, another medic, and he's just kind of standing there with this look on his face. So, like, Barry Cash, keep running. I stop, and I'm like, what, what are you doing? And he's like, uh, my vehicle, you know, same basic thing. You know, he got out of his vehicle to check up, to help with the wounded, and then the vehicle got filled up with wounded, and it took off. He just kind of got left behind. It was one of those battlefield things. And I was like, well, you better come with us, man. I grabbed him by the arm and, and just pushed him in front of me because he was kind of in a daze, you know, like he had just done his job for real. And their job is very hard. They have to see our own guys torn up by, by what the job is. And so we helped him get across the river. We <laughs> come crawling back into the reorg, panting, <laughs> tongues hanging out of our mouth. We're so tired and thirsty. And that day, not the end of it quite, but all those actions were my first real taste of the job, of what the actual combat infantry job is. So to me, like that's one of the most memorable days of my whole career. Never mind, yeah, I remember my first day and I remember my last day and all this, but this was the day where we, a lot of us learned exactly what we signed up to do, you know? Absolutely. So that was the opening day of Op Medusa.
Yeah, and that didn't end there. That just kept on going even more difficult after that. Well, the next day didn't help when the A-10 strafed the guys and killed one of ours and stuff like that. So luckily we had moved back to our sniper position, so we weren't in the thick of it when uh, when the rounds came in. But uh, yeah, you know, like it, but it was a real eye-opener. We had Master Corporals. After that day, we had Master Corporals acting as warrants. We had sergeants being platoon commanders because that's that's what we had to do to adapt to the situation of losing 40-something guys out of the yeah. company. A lot of them senior. The sergeant major was taken out. You know, he was wounded pretty bad during the attack. The company commander the next day was wounded when the A-10 strafed. Two of the senior, two of the platoon CQ was was Rick and Nolan, and Frank Mellish was one of the platoon warrants. You know, so it was massive loss of senior leadership, and guys all stepped up proudly and with competence and did the job like they're supposed to. That's probably the most memorable day for me is the opening day of Op Medusa. I'm very sorry to have to do this to you, the good listener, because I am out of editing time for today. There's absolutely nothing I can do. I've got just enough time to write some show notes and to get this episode posted for today. You're going to have to wait till next week to hear part two of the interview with Master Corporal Jody Middick and find out who his greatest influences were and what the greatest challenge he had to overcome. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at cmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.